0: Happy Easter, everybody! Happy Easter. We're gonna do something that's gonna be a little traditional. It's not not like us, but I have to say this—they've pretty much been doing this for almost two thousand years. So it's Easter morning; it's a big deal, right? And so typically, uh, the pastor or somebody up front would say, "Christ is risen!" And the people would respond, "He is risen." Let me try it one more time. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, that was a little weak. You might want to try that again. right? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you. Yeah, kind of a big deal. So glad that you're here to celebrate with us today. Uh, I want to start out... Uh, we've been, obviously, we uh, shared the Easter story a little bit ago. Uh, we're going to talk about Easter, but I have to say, I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey to get there. It's probably the most unusual <laughs> passage I've ever started with on Easter, and so I just want us to, to kind of dig in and to tell you a story that's an Old Testament, it's sort of an obscure passage in the Old Testament um, that will lead us uh, into Easter. You might be tempted to think, what in the world is he talking about? How does this tie into Easter? Stick with me. We'll get there, I promise. So this comes from... Um, Old Testament, it's it's. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you a quick snapshot. Old Testament pri- is primarily a story about um, God and His people. Right? It's a, in the Old Testament, we they understand His people as being Israel, right? In the New Testament, we kind of get the fuller picture. We understand that uh, when He talks about God's people, He's talking about the church. He's talking about believers, people that put their faith and trust in Christ. But Old Testament days, they understood it around like the, the whole idea of Israel. And so this is a story from Israel's history. At this point, in the journey God had um, uh, led them out of slavery um, into uh, the promised land. he taken them around the desert and kind of taught, taught them to follow for 40 years, right? Wandering around the desert. Finally, God brings them into what they call the promised land, this land that God had promised to. which He said is, it's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. This is going to be a, a great place for you. And so they've gone into this promised land and... Uh, and now they get to a point where they were struggling a bit. They were leaderless in that day. Uh, there was no king in Israel. Uh, and they were at war with the Philistines, which is sort of the military powerhouse. It was like the, the superpower of that day. And uh, it was not going well. They in and they fought this battle, and they lost, and they lost. Huge, And they got to that point, which all of us, I think many of us get to when things are not going our way, where they stood back and they're like, they're, they're kind of evaluating, what the heck is going on? Like, God, where are you? Why didn't you come through for us like this, right? Why why aren't things going our way? What did I do wrong? What's happening here? And so they start asking all these questions. Where was God? We were counting on him, and he didn't pull through um the way we want it to. Which reminds me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit pause for one second, just do a shameless plug, <laughs> and just say, you know what? If if you uh, ever wrestle with that, they were doubting, is what the Israelites were doing. They were, they were questioning their faith in God, wondering where is He? Why isn't He coming through? Next week, we are gonna be starting a brand new series here at Ignite called "I Believe in God, Bud." Dot dot dot. And we're gonna start out the series by talking about Bud. I doubt sometimes, when I struggle with, with belief sometimes. And so we're going to have a real honest conversation about doubting God, doubting our faith, doubting where is he in the midst of, of suffering and pain and hardship and that kind of thing. So if that's something you wrestle with, I would just encourage you to come back and join us for the series. It's going to be a, a great one. But that's, that's kind of what happens to all of us. Uh, when things get hard, we start questioning We start wondering, where is God? And that's what's happening in this story The people of Israel, God's people start wondering God, where are you? They start doubting And then somebody gets a good idea and they say, you know what, we don't really need God to figure this out for us I know what to do and so they say. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back out and fight the Philistines again. Only this time, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to we're going to lead that out, you know, with us into battle. And God will surely make us win. Now, now, just to understand, the Ark of the Covenant was basically a box where they kept the Ten Commandments in that day. But it was wasn't just a box. It represented sort of the presence of God to His people. The way they were thinking about it, it was like God in a box. And they thought, if we take God in a box out and we go to war, surely God will give us victory. He'll give us what we want, right? This is all going to work out exactly. We can sort of manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. Surely God wouldn't let the ark, he wouldn't let his presence get captured by the Philistines. He wouldn't let them win when his presence, you know, God in a box is sitting there. uh, And they thought, he has to give us what we're hoping for. Now, I have to say, it reminds me of a (laughs) quote from the great theologian. Um, uh, known as Homer Simpson, so I've got a quote up here. Familiar <laughs> he, with Homer Simpson? This is uh, this is an episode where. Uh, Homer uh, pledges money to a PBS uh, telethon just because he's sick of Homer <laughs> taking over the airwaves and he wants them to quit. And so he calls up and makes a pledge. The only problem is he doesn't actually have the money to pay it. And so when uh, when uh, the PBS people find, about, find out, they force him to serve with a bunch of missionaries on a tropical island. <laughs> okay? And so uh, one of the things they do while they're there is they build this this church uh, with, with the missionaries. And now Homer is not super uh, uh, theologically astute, but he's proud of their accomplishment so he sums it up like this he says well I don't know that much about God but we sure have built him a nice little cage <laughs> I thing. and uh, I have to say this is sort of what's happening with the people of Israel we've got a little God in the box and, and we're going to bring him out before the, the people of Israel and surely he's going to win surely we're, he's going to do what we want him to do but the truth about God is this you just can't keep him in a cage you just can't control him like that. He cannot be tamed. He cannot be domesticated. You can't force him to give you the things that you're hoping for. But that's what the Israelites try to do. They go into battle a second time. And as you might imagine, it's a nightmare. It's a disaster. They lose seven times more troops than they lost in the first battle. And worst of all, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. Right? The, the, the symbolic presence of God in their midst gets hauled off by the Philistines as do many of their people in captivity. I mean, it's, in, it's unthinkable to them. In their minds, it's like losing the presence of God that makes them distinct and special as a people. They've lost everything that they've been hoping for. And that's where the story starts getting interesting. It's at that time when, when all hope seems lost that God is going to do something that they could not do for themselves. The Philistines carry the Ark of the Covenant off to a city uh, called Ashdod. It's where the temple of their god is, and their god is their god is called Dagon. The priests take the ark, uh, they put it inside, in this kind of inside their temple next to a statue of Dagon, and uh, and all the Philistines cheer because they think Dagon has prevailed over Yahweh, the God of Israel. They have a big feast. There's drinking. They chant their favorite chants. They tell battle stories. They slap each other on the back. Right? It's everything is great, and then they go home when it's nighttime. Nobody's present to see or hear what's going on. They close the doors to the temple, but something happens during the night. The priests come in at dawn, and this is, this is what the Bible says, 1 Samuel 5, 3. It says, When the people of Ashton rose the early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon, and they put him back in its place. Now, the text doesn't really say what they're thinking about or what was going on in their heads. Maybe they thought, maybe it's just an accident, right? Maybe this was a fluke of some kind. But it looks suspiciously as if Dagon has bowed down to worship the God of Israel. And they are astute enough to know that's not a good thing for their God. And so they they pick the idol back up. They put it back, kind of dust the brush back, can't talk. brush the dust off the thing, and they set it back in its place, like, let's not talk about this ever again, right, like, let's, let's just pretend this didn't happen, and so they go about day two, right, and uh, and there's more celebration, and there's Philistines that are coming into the temple, and they're worshiping, and they're celebrating their victory, they're offering sacrifices and singing praises to their God, and that night, the, priest, the priests turn off the lights, and they close the doors once again, and they go home. And something happens a second day. Dagon thinks, here we go again, right? And so this is what happens in verse 4. It says this. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, though, his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. I mean, can you imagine the sight? So the next morning they come in, the priest found found that once again, Dagon has fallen. He's on his face before the Ark of the Lord. And not only that, but this time he's maimed, right? His his arms, his his head has all been taken off. All that's left is a stump there bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. Would you love to know how the story ends? I would love to know uh, what happened at that moment and uh, and what was going on in their heads. But the text doesn't really tell us that. All we do know is it's a three-day story the first day is a very dark day for the people of Israel. It looks like their God is defeated and the glory is gone. In fact, in that day, if you go on and you read, uh, you find out that after they lose the battle, after the Ark is captured, the priest of Israel, his name is Eli. he dies. His two sons die, and eventually his daughter-in-law dies. But uh, his daughter-in-law is in childbirth in the midst of this, and when she hears how Israel has fallen, how they've been lost, how the Ark of the Covenant has been carried away—the visible presence of God—after after she hears that that's been captured by the Philistines, what she says is she wants to name her son Ichabod, which is uh, which is a strange name for us, but Kabod uh, as one writer points out, is kind of the main word in the whole story. It's the Hebrew word for glory, and the I at the beginning. Uh, it means it's gone, right? It's, it, it's sort of like the, the difference between an atheist and a theist, right? It, the A makes it negative. So a theist is somebody that believes in God. An atheist is somebody that doesn't believe in God, right? It's that kind of a thing. It's the same thing with Ichabod. Kabod means glory. It's the presence. It's the, it's the greatness of our God. And ik means the glory is gone. The glory is gone. Now what she's saying is this. she's What she's basically saying is this whole thing is a pipe dream. The whole thing is is dead. The prophets, the writers of scripture, they were all dead wrong. There's no, the heroes of the faith like Abraham and Moses, they were wrong. The dream is dead. There's no God. There's no Yahweh. There's no glory. Life doesn't mean anything. You're born, you die, that's it. Our son might as well know it from his earliest memories. Ichabod, the glory is gone forever. That's the first day. is it a pretty happy day around the Israelite camp? It's over. It's done. It's a dark day. There is no hope, no glory. No one can understand why or why God seems to be absent. And some days are like that, aren't they? Some days are like that. Then there's the second day. and The second day is an interesting day. It's a, a day of hidden combat. It's covered in mystery. It's a day of uncertainty and anxiety sometimes. Nobody knows what's going to happen. There's depression. All hope seems lost. And some days are like that. But then there's a the third day. And on the third day, the story takes a 180-degree turn. The idol is overturned. The time of captivity is over. God is going to come home to his people because the third day is God's day. It's the day of hope because he is the third-day God. Now, this is kind of a pattern that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Often the people of Israel are told that they're going to have to wait for a season. They've been disappointed. Help is coming. Rescue is coming. But they're going to have to wait for a specific period of time. Oftentimes that period of time is three days. It's a time of anticipation. Let me give you some examples. Let's kind of go through some rapid fire. When a hero named Joseph is in prison, he said to Pharaoh's cupbearer, in three days, Pharaoh will lift you up, uh, will lift up your head and restore you to your job. Genesis 40. When Israel was trapped in slavery, Moses asked Pharaoh, let's go go three days into the wilderness to worship. When the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, God says, consecrate or prepare the people and make them ready by the third day because on the third day, the Lord will come down. And on the morning of the third day, it says it came to pass. When When Israel was threatened with genocide, a harem girl named Esther says that she will fast and pray to the Lord for three days and seeks others to do so as well, and then she'll go to the king to seek deliverance for her people. When Jonah is swallowed and is in the belly of a fish, how long was he in there? Okay, that was weak. How long was he in there? Three days before he gets spit up at a seaside port. When the Israelites were afraid to go into the promised land, God said to Israel, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan River and possess the land that I have given you and you'll walk through on dry ground. The third day was used so frequently in the Old Testament that it became kind of a technical expression, meaning a time to wait for liberation, a time to wait for freedom. It's a way of saying right now things are messed up. Right now hope is being crushed. Right now hearts are disappointed. But another day, a better day is coming. In the book of Hosea, he says it like this. God says it like this. Come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will revive. God will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Isn't that good? It's the third day God. There's a day of hope that's coming. It's the whole three-day imagery. But one day, deliverance came to us. Hope came to us in a way that nobody in their right mind expected. God came to his people not in a box, not in a tabernacle, not in a little thing, but he came to us in the form of a man. And that man was named Jesus. John chapter 1 describes it this way, he said, well, the Word, which is, he's talking about Jesus, he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now again, the language used here is interesting, and it, the Word became flesh, and it means literally he tabernacled uh, with us, which is, the tabernacle is the place the Ark of the Covenant used to be stored, right, and again, it's a picture of the presence of God, he says, Jesus came, right, and he dwelt, he tabernacled with us. Instead of being in a little box, he's saying, I am now with you, wherever you are, wherever you go, I am there, I am among you. Not just God in a cage, but he dwelt, he came to dwell among us. And then it says, we beheld his glory, the God, right? The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's really interesting language, but the glory of God returned with Jesus and he dwelt among us. He wasn't God in the cage. Nobody could tame Jesus. The politicians couldn't do it. The zealots couldn't do it. The religious leaders couldn't do it. But Lord knows they tried. Nobody could manipulate him to get what they wanted. Nobody could shut him up. So in the end, the religious leaders, those who were in power, took him and lashed him with a whip. They pierced him with nails and a sword, and they hung him on a cross to die. And then laid him in a tomb. That was the first day. It was a dark day. His followers were crushed. They had seen his glory for a while, but now it was Ichabod. The the glory was gone. God, where are you was the common question among his followers. We thought he was the Savior. We thought he was the one, but now he's dead. He's lying in a tomb. All hope is lost. The dream is dead. Our hope is destroyed. That's That's the day we call Good Friday, the day that God died, so to speak. The second day it didn't look any better. On the second day, Pontius Pilate posted a guard to stand guard over the tomb because he was in control now. He's like, I got this, right? He posted a guard, he sealed the tomb and said, I don't want any funny business. I don't want anybody coming and playing with the body of Jesus. And so we're just gonna we're gonna seal this up because it's over. And I want everybody, everybody to know that this is over. And he thought to himself, Well, I guess that's the end of that. I guess we won't hear any more about this Jesus movement stuff. I don't know much about this Jesus, but we sure have built him a nice little cage. And he probably thought to himself. But again, the thing about Jesus is you just, you just can't keep him down. You just can't control him. You can't keep him in a cage. He never was a cage kind of guy. They didn't know it, but death was not defeat for him. The Bible says that he died for our sins. He died to do what you and I could never do, even with our best efforts, even with our self-improvement efforts, even with trying to do better or to give enough or to go to church enough or to do all the right things. He did what you and I could never do. He would set things right between God and us. He came to bring forgiveness to us, freedom from sin to us, to bring us back into a relationship with God. He was dying to death that by all rights... You and I should have died for our sins. That was the first day. And the second day wasn't much better. It was a disappointing day. But the story of Jesus is a three-day story, is it not? We found, what we found out on the third day was that there is someone, and there was someone that we can hope in, that there is better news than anything that we could possibly be hoping for. Because of him, the third day came. One author I read this week said it this way, the third day is God's day. The third day is when prisoners of Pharaoh get set free. The third day is when people come to the mountain and the mountains shake and the rivers are parted and the people of God walk on dry ground into the promised land. The third day is the day when harem girls like Esther face down powerful giant kings. The third day is the day like the prophets like Jonah are dropped off at seaside ports by giant fish. The third day is the day that idols like David come tumbling down and God starts coming home to his people. The third day is the day that stones get rolled away and crucified carpenters come back to life. You never know what God's going to do because God is the God of the third day. From that day on, the church has never been the same. His followers have never been the same. They started worshiping Jesus, uh, who had formerly they'd been worshiping Jesus on the Sabbath, on Saturdays. But starting from that time forward, they started worshiping on Sunday, what they call the Lord's Day. We call it the Sunday, right? It's Jesus Day. In Russian, it's called uh, it, it's called Resurrection Day. Every Sunday, right? It, suddenly, they started worshiping on a different day of the week because they're like, man, we are people of the third day, right? We are people that worship and remember a third day God, a God that. Death could not even keep him down. A God that can bust into any situation, can bust into any life and turn it around. He specializes in bringing dead things to life, into bringing hope to where there was none. We worship a third day God. We're betting the farm on this one. You never know what what God might do on the third day. Well, we are here today to celebrate and to worship and remember. The third day, right? The first day is good. It's the day that Jesus died for our sin. The second day was dark. But the third day is what brings the whole thing into focus, right? The third day shows that Jesus is alive. It shows he has power over the grave. It shows that his promises are true. You can take him to the bank. He is faithful, and he is alive forevermore. He's a third-day God. And on that day, on that resurrection day, Christ's followers found hope and freedom and power and new life. Why? Because he was alive. He is alive. Because sin and death have been completely defeated and annihilated. Because he was alive. <clears throat> excuse me, because he was alive and would be with them always. Because nothing could possibly stop him, not even death. And that changed everything. And the same is true for us. Because of this resurrection, because of this third day, for you and me, there's great freedom, and there's great power, and there's great hope. Let me just, I'll hit each of these just real quick. Just shine a light on these. The third day brings resurrection freedom, right? Freedom from guilt and sin. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He's the one that came to, to buy His back and to set us free. He bought us by paying the penalty for our sins. On the cross, and through His resurrection on the third day, He offers to completely forgive, to set free from sin anybody that would come and ask Him. We'll set you free from your past. We talked about this on Good Friday. That's the point of Good Friday, where we talked about, man, because of the cross, there is freedom and forgiveness for your past. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been a pretty good, good little chap, or if you've been uh, super far from God died to sin. He's died to free you from that sin and bring you home. A couple of verses to talk about that. John 34-36, through Jesus is talking. He says, very truly I tell you, everybody who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. In Acts 13, 38 puts it this way. Therefore, my dear friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Is set free from every sin. There's freedom from your past. There's forgiveness for whatever lies in your past. Any sin that stands before you in the present, even all future sins, it has been paid for on the cross. And there is a freedom as a result through Christ. Secondly, the third day provides us with power to live a new life. The good news about Easter is that Jesus is alive and he promises to come and take up residence in our lives. For those who believe, who those who put their faith in Christ, he comes to live inside of us, to fill us with his power and his presence, to lead us and remind us and to draw us to God, to, to bring a transformation, a resurrection about in your life and in my to, to make us more and more and more like Christ every day of our lives, to follow Him. Ephesians uh, 1, 18-20, it's a prayer that uh, gets prayed, but it's filled with God's truth as well. Ephesians 1, 18 says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be open, enlightened, in order that you may know, know the hope that you have, to which you have been called, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. Do you kind of get what he's saying there? That same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and lives inside of you if you are a follower of Jesus. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that is there to shape you and to craft you and to form you more and more and more into the image of Jesus. Think about that. That power is available to you and me. Power, that power is at work within us. John 14, 16 through 19, I'm just going to read the last part here. But it says, <clears throat> but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. Who also will live. Jesus says that power is coming to take up residence in you. He's come to live in you. He's not going to leave you as orphans. You're not left on your own. He has a plan for you. He's trying to draw you close. He wants to bring about good plans and a good work, good power in your life to bring about Christ likeness in you and you. Friends, because of Easter, we can know his presence. God offers us to bring us back into relationship with him. He wants to do life with us, and he wants us to experience his transforming power in our lives. And that takes us to the third one, which is the third day gives us hope for today and tomorrow. And actually, all of these should give us, if we understand them, all of these are hope-saturated points, right? You came to give us hope for life for today and for tomorrow. First, we can have tremendous hope for this life, knowing that God cares, knowing that he's with us. We read this on Good Friday but Romans 8. puts it this way. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He's saying, are you kidding me? If God loves you this much... If he is for you, that much, if he lives inside of you, what could possibly happen, right? What could happen? If God is for us, who could be against us? He will graciously pour out his good plans on you. can give us tremendous hope that there is nothing that we can face that this third day God can't bust in and do in our lives. There's there's nothing uh, that is insurmountable, nothing that his will and his power can accomplish second thing is it's it's also hope for eternal life. It's hope for life in this life, but also the life for all eternity. Titus puts it this way. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of any righteous things we had done, but because of His own mercy and grace. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of His spirit, who we poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Friends, you and I can have great confidence and hope because of Easter that if we put our faith and trust in Christ, death is not the end. You and I will spend eternity with him in heaven forever. He proved it, right? He's the only one that has power over the grave. He's the only one that has died and come back to tell us about it, right? He's the one, he's the one that said, Hey, look, I have gone there, I have conquered sin, I have conquered death, and now I offer life to you come and accept it, if you'll come and receive it, if you'll come and step into it. John 17, 3 says this, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Friends, Easter is huge. Because of Easter, there is freedom for our sin and guilt and shame. There's freedom from our fear of death. Because of Easter, there is power available to us, power for this life, power to change, power to live the life that we were made for, that we were born for. And there's because of Easter, there is real and confident hope, both, both for the here and now and for our eternities. It's all available to any person on the planet. It's available to you today if you'll receive it, if you'll put your faith and trust in Christ. One day, Jesus died for our sins. And he was raised to life on the third day. And he now offers to bring that third day power back into our lives. That third day hope into our lives. That third day freedom into our lives. But it's all hinged on. It's all dependent on our willingness to receive it from him. And to turn our lives over to him. And to be lived in him and with him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reminds us that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. Through faith by works so that nobody can boast. It's the gift of God given to you, but we receive it by faith. By faith means literally an active step of trust. It's a, it's a surrendering of our lives to him. It's a, it's, a, it's a calling out, a crying out in our soul saying, Jesus, I need you. Would you come and would you forgive me? And would you lead me? And would you lead my God? I'm all in. I am yours. I need you, Jesus. Would you come and be my God? Would you come and be my Savior? Would you come and bring about a resurrection in me? Friends, if you have never made that kind of commitment before, or even if you have, but you find yourself waiting a little bit these days, Today is the day. Every day is the day. But especially on Easter. We've got to come back and be like, man, Christ wants to bring resurrection life back to you. And if you and I are living even a little bit beneath that privilege these days, if we are finding ourselves once again dogged by the past, by sin that just seem to bite at our ankles all the time, by junk and guilt and shame from back there, if we find ourselves discouraged and depressed and defeated, feeling like we're, we're living in the first and second day, or even if we find ourselves worried about the, the stuff of tomorrow, whatever, whatever your reality, then I think God is crying out to you today that he is a third-day God that he has good plans for you. He wants to come and bring hope and new life and resurrection power into your life and into your life today. I don't know where you stand with God, I don't know what, what he's speaking to you or what he's saying to you today, but my hope and my prayer is that all of us, whether we've prayed that prayer dozens of times before or whether we've, we're new to this God stuff and we're like, you know what, I, I've never, never really opened myself up to anyone. Wherever you're at, anywhere on the spectrum, don't miss the point of Easter. Don't miss the resurrection power that he wants to bring. Don't miss the resurrection hope that he has for you. Don't miss the resurrection life that he has in store for you. But today, my hope and my desire is that you and me, all of us, we open up our hands, open up our hearts and our lives to Jesus and just say, come and have your way." Let's turn to him this morning. And I'm just going to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're comfortable, this might wake you up, might take a weird meter, but if you're comfortable, would you just sort of put your hands out like this, sort of as a way just to say, I surrender and I I, uh, I, I need you, Jesus. Just kind of open up your hands like this and just, just pray with me and your own God. God, okay, we thank you for being a God of, of resurrection, a God that not even death can keep you down. A God that that brings hope and life and freedom and power to us when we desperately need it. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for loving us so much that you would die for our sins. But we thank you that more than that, that you are alive and now offer to freely forgive our sins. You offer to fill us with your presence and lead us on the path of life for Right now, we just cry out, Jesus. Please. Would you forgive us for our sins? Would you forgive us for our waywardness, for the ways that we uh, so easily and so often turn away from your plans and your will, even your presence, and just go our own way? Would you forgive us, God? Or would you forgive us for so often and so easily, as well, just. Um, I don't know, just getting discouraged and defeated, losing sight of you, and just imagining we're just on our own, just doing our own thing. Would you forgive us for our sin? Would you forgive us for our broken hearts? Would you come and live inside of us? Come and take up residency in us, God? Meet us and, guys, be our God. We need you, we want you come and bring about a resurrection in our hearts, God, in our souls. Teach us to follow you. Teach us to, to know your love.